Hey everybody, Ryan Molly here, and I am really excited about this week's guest. Um, he's a buddy of mine from 2012, so I've known him for well over a decade. Um, he's an orthopedic colleague, orthopedic buddy, um, worked with him with a small orthopedic company that has now become a relatively big orthopedic company, one of the fastest growing orthopedic companies in the world, Medacta, and um, he's a great guy. He's a unbelievable um, individual at what he does professionally. But what I've really grown to appreciate about this individual is who he is personally. And he has so much passion for life, for his family, his wife, his his children, and his 10 grandchildren. So you're going to want to stick around. we got Matt DeLong coming up, and it's going to be a great episode. Talk to you soon. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Hey Sawbones, my story, my passion. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Molly, orthopedic surgeon, cutter of bones, entrepreneur, business owner, and um, most importantly, loving husband, father of three uh, very young, very busy, active boys. And today I'm super excited. Um, this is my guest that has traveled the furthest for uh, one of these episodes. He's coming from Nashville, Tennessee. And I've known uh, this particular guest for well over a decade. Our paths crossed back in, I think, 2012. Um, super exciting guy. He's got a lot of great stories, a lot of great history, and has become a fast friend of mine uh, well over a decade ago. And we've we've grown very close. And um, he's from the orthopedic industry. That's kind of how I grew to know him. Um, and without further ado, Matt DeLong. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing well, Ryan. Thank you. Yeah. So um had to come all the way from Nashville to come up here to do this, right? Nashville is a wonderful, wonderful town. And uh, been, we've been there probably 12, 11, 12 years now. An absolutely spectacular community. I grew up in the north. I guess we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. Yeah. But uh, I, I will tell you, if you haven't visited... Nashville is, for many reasons that go well beyond music, a wonderful place to go. 
one of the fastest growing cities in the United States from everything I've heard and read. I mean, we've got Austin up there, we've got Nashville, we've got all these cities that are just booming. And mm -hmm. I've, I've been there several times in the past couple of years. Um, the company that you work for and that I've used a lot of products over the years, their U.S. headquarters has moved there, Medacta. Um, so, so the U.S. headquarters for Medacta. And, uh, but Matt DeLong, where, where, where did you start? I mean, um, cause we, we have a couple common threads there too. We, we do. It's, uh, yeah, my, my story, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. Um, so I'm, I'm guilty of being a Buckeye and yet I'm, I'm one of those people that's not guilty of, uh, going to Ohio state, right? I'm part of the indoctrinated, uh, Buckeyes when you grow up in a community, but very, very large, uh, universe. And I had aspirations of baseball uh, out of high school. And that was kind of as an 18-year-old, kind of your identity, right? You're, yeah. You're going to school for a lot of reasons. But for some of us, kind of sports draws you there. And uh, so started started in Tiffin, Ohio, actually, at uh, Heidelberg College, a wonderful uh, school. And then decided to transfer to Mount Vernon Nazarene University, which is in just outside of Columbus in Mount Vernon, Ohio. It was a wonderful experience. But um Graduated college with not a lot of a vision for what was next, right? What it was your degree when you were it at? It was in, in marketing and communications and, okay. and business uh, administration as well. So I was able to, I gave baseball up when I realized that professional dreams were not what I was uh, put on earth to realize. And uh, eventually really buckled down academically. And so we finished there. The story really takes a twist, though. You know, this was you know the late '80s, and the job market was pretty tough, especially for young college grads. The economy was struggling a bit. It's when interest rates then, uh, what what we complain about today, was was a pretty good rate back then, sure. right? So just everything was a little bit tougher. And I got a call from an old friend in Warsaw, Indiana. And there's a small college there. And uh, I was able to get basically an entry-level job. And I think... At a college? At, at a college, yeah. What and college was it? So it was Grace College. And, okay. And it's Warsaw, but a little little town called Winona Lake there. It didn't matter. It was work, right? But I think it, it's like where, all, where everything kind of lines up. Um, through... Working at Grace, then I was introduced to some people at a, at a company that really doesn't exist in the same form anymore, but it was Biomed Orthopedics. Uh, and so for, for those of you that don't know, the orthopedic world, when we say orthopedic, obviously Ryan uh, replaces joints and use many, uses many different manufacturers. But this small town, 12,000 people, um, there were at one time three of the top four largest orthopedic manufacturers again joint so the, this is like meadville pennsylvania yeah yeah very, very very small town so it doesn't make sense that this industry that has grown dramatically right as as orthopedic care has expanded into so many different disciplines but i was fortunate enough not because of my orthopedic knowledge but because somebody saw something in me to start working with biomed many many years ago again incredibly unqualified didn't have a foundation but they saw something in me right and when be, was that G give us I'll a time be, frame oh my gosh now we're in the mid 90s now okay right yeah so 
think I was uh, I was there for 16 years uh, total, but really started amongst an amazing community of orthopedic professionals, and specifically at Biomet in those days. Uh, had no idea the kind of environment that I was able to learn and kind of be reared in in this industry. Uh, probably wasn't as thankful for it until I got older be honest. It just was what it was. I was incredibly spoiled. And I think that any of the older biomed employees that have scattered around the industry, if not retired by now, uh, would attest to, it was something very special. We probably didn't know what we had until it wasn't there anymore. And, uh, things did, and the world did change. And, and, uh, so after 16 years there, I had, uh, really fate, uh, stepped in the way, and I was introduced to some some former biomed employees, but then uh, Medacta International that, that you mentioned, and uh, that Which has been Swiss based. Yeah, company. it's been thirteen years, 12, 12 plus now. So this has been quite approaching the, the same length of time that you were at Biomed. Yeah, it's almost like two different careers. Isn't there. that something? Yeah, it, it's it's well, two different careers doing a lot of the same things. Yeah. Certainly. With uh, Medacta being very much, I guess we would just simply say a kind of a startup company back then, especially right. here in the United States, and and uh, it's where you sign up for one job and you get eighteen others. And <laughs> you're young enough and dumb enough and willing to just just kind of set the dial on go. And you know, ten years later, eleven years later, you look back, man, I've been on go for a long time here. Yeah, but. Um, it, it it both experiences though have been the honors of my life. There's no doubt about that. Uh, there's absolutely nothing that I would take back, uh, and yet every day is still an opportunity for growth. Right. So yeah, I've been in the, been when, in the when industry. When did you start with Medacta? Time. What year was that? So it would have been uh, 2011. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was introduced right, right around there too. I think again, you and I, I think met in 2012. Yeah. But, yeah, uh, was 2012. It absolutely was. Uh, now, you know, you did your training with some surgeons that um, that I had worked with previously. and We, <laughs> we kind of had the same um, heritage for the types of products that we were exposed sure. to. And um, so we, we connected. You were still in Michigan at that time. Yeah, because I no, did my no fellowship vibe, in Columbus. Right? Yeah. Right. And I was there 2010, 2011, finished, came out and started practice in July of 2011 yeah. and, and moved back to Michigan, which is where I had done my residency. But um, and then we met shortly, probably six months after that. Yeah. And so one of the one of the challenges that, that I had, you know, and without being too technical on you know the products, it was really about you know, a U.S. surgeon at this time was more newly introduced to the anterior approach, right? Mm -hmm. Where you're kind of operating with the patient supine, laying on their back, as opposed to the way that we were all exposed, I think, through much of our training, where you lay the patient on their side and, you know, go posterior, anterior. And, and we're talking about hip replacement right now. We're talking yeah. about hip replacement. And that was my truly my focus at the time. But in the United States especially because it was a technique that was a little bit more common in parts of Europe, specifically France. Sure. And, you know, but it was kind of foreign uh, to us. Yeah. And so 
One of the things that we at Medacta, I think, um, understood very well, but it was the, the, the demand was driving where we put our resources, but we were very small. You got to pick one thing, you got to do it really well, right? With a few people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think, again, in those days, uh, there was so much excitement. There was, this, there was maybe a fresh perspective. And we needed people that not only had been exposed to the anterior approach, but had a heart for teaching, right. you know? And I think that's where our relationship started to grow because, you know, you, you had a heart for teaching, mm-hmm. you know, and all that could come together. There was only one problem. We were doing the anterior technique the way that, that we were trained a lot different than maybe some of the resources that, that Medacta <laughs> was providing. Right. Know? It wasn't quite the Swiss uh, technique uh, at uh, that point. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we said, well, you know, Ryan, we're going to grow on you. Right. And just let us kind of expose you to some of the, some of the tips and tricks. And, and, and I think over time, uh, you, you really did incorporate a lot of, what what we were teaching? I think oh, every yeah. doctor has their own little variation. So for sure, we'll agree. But I think we were able to grow together a lot more as we both kind of learned this new <laughs> approach that together. And I'll always be thankful for you. I mean, it was a we were a small team, and you were you are a major part of that. Well, before we came on air here, uh, Matt and I had an opportunity to go have dinner together and. Um, it was just nice to be able to kind of like rehash and look back and it's hard to believe that it's been, you know, 11, 12 years. Yeah. And, um, cause it doesn't seem like that long ago uh-huh. when, I, when I, when I look back on it, but, um, you know, that was when I first came out in, in practice, but, um, I will always be forever grateful to, um, my teachers in, in Columbus with Dr. Mm-hmm. Lombardi, Dr. Barron, Dr. Barron was the one that approached, uh, really introduced me to the anterior approach, but it was very, very different than the way that I currently do it. Mm. Um, and then very shortly after I graduated fellowship is when we met. And I remember I was very young. I was very hard headed. I was like, I don't need a table. I don't need this. I'm going to do it this way. Cause this is how I was taught. And as I got out into the real world, I started to realize that there were definitely some specific advantages to incorporating some of the medactive philosophies and didn't take long when no. I incorporated pretty much all of the medactive philosophies and started using the mobile leg positioner. Um, I was very committed, dedicated to using a femoral elevator hook, mm-hmm. which I had designed mm-hmm. um, a hook and used for several hundred anterior hips and um, medact eventually kind of took that product on, but, and that was a fun project for me, but as time goes, you start to, your, your skills develop, your uh, technique improves. And I started to realize that I needed that less. Mm-hmm. And I started using the bump, which again, to a lot of people doesn't make a lot of sense, but we were trying to push the femur up when we dropped the foot down to expose the femur when we we're putting the stem in, which is quite honestly, the hardest part of doing an anterior hip replacement. Mm-hmm. And then as I got more comfortable and, and, um, more experienced with that, I, started using the bump less. I can't honestly remember the last time I did use the bump or the hook. And, um, you know, we just started modifying things with, and we all kind of started doing this together, whether it was Frederick Lode, who's kind of the, the I would say the godfather of the anterior 
minimally invasive surgery, the AMAS technique for, mm-hmm. for Medacta, um, and, and kind of designed that specific surgical approach and technique. And we've gotten to the point where we use very minimal releases mm-hmm. and um, then we modify it to where we, we changed our incisions from vertical to horizontal to the bikini style approach. And it's just been a fun process. So not to digress much, but do you use the bikini routinely or do you use 100%. Yeah. I, I, I don't remember the last time I did a traditional, just for our viewers out there, what he's referring to is um, a traditional answer hip approach. And, and Jay, if you could maybe put right here, just one of those little descriptions of, uh, and I can supply you with some photos uh, the traditional approach was more vertically oriented, centered right over uh, the main muscle group that we kind of go just on the inside of, which is the tensor fascia, lot of muscle. And uh, so the incision was vertical. It was about maybe four uh, inches long. And we would go truly intermuscular, not cutting any muscles, not detaching any muscles or tendons. And then about three and a half, four years ago, uh, myself and and my associate, Dr. Frednick, we switched to do a bikini approach where we literally turn the incision perpendicular to that. Mm-hmm. And it's allowed for much more uh, cosmetic uh, surgical technique. But more importantly, it significantly reduced our wound complications and mm-hmm. our, um, you know, you know, superficial and deep infections, because that was the one real downside to uh, doing the vertical approach is that top part of the incision would really get beat up when people would, would sit and, and flex because it would, the incision would fold on itself. Well, I think, you know, everything that we do, I mean, would you say hip replacement was the operation of the 20th century, correct? That, it's that, been termed that. that. Yeah. It's been, it's, fact. it's been the, the operation of the century. And, and quite honestly, it is the most successful operation that we do on planet earth. Second to none. And especially the, the quality of life. But yeah. I mean, I can go back far enough to remember in joint replacement. And I'm going to make a point with this, but to go back when, if, if grandma was having hip replacement surgery, right? There was either, it was a tragic fall. um, Maybe wasn't as routine for somebody that was simply uncomfortable and find themselves sitting in the chair a lot more because it just hurt to walk that you just kind of adapt to it over the years. People would wait a lot longer. Right. The, the numbers, the commonality weren't there. And so we'll, we'll talk, you know, the eighties. Mm-hmm. Right. And, but grandma would have a hip replacement and all of the kids or whoever was available would literally relocate for a couple months. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, she was in the hospital at least a week. Right. Bare minimum. Yeah. Bare, Oftentimes bare, going bare to rehab minimum. for maybe uh, three or four weeks. But after I mean, the operation. this is, this is along the lines of, you know, and again, in the days where open heart surgery, I mean, it, that's not to minimize that procedure It's right. not to minimize a hip replacement, but it fascinates me how we look back. And, and again, this is my lifetime, right? I mean, I remember these accommodations, uh, in the seriousness, I mean, the absolute, life and death seriousness of needing this done to have any quality of life. Right. Cause we, we know when you lose that, especially physically, then life is, is not going to be what it could have been. Right. right. But the answers weren't as easy nor readily available. Right? Sure. And so that we talk about the different, we certainly weren't doing same day hip replacement. No, I, no, I mean, can you imagine? I mean, like in my youth, I mean, <laughs> same day, anything. Give me yeah. a break. Right. 
any operation was mega and critically important. And frankly, the success wasn't as guaranteed either, right? So, so many things that we take for granted. And you and I are talking about adjusting an incision. I mean, so you're talking about how do you improve the most successful surgical procedure of the 20th century now that we're in the 21st, Mm -hmm. right? And so those are the things that we work on. Those are the things that we work on together. What what are those little percentages now? Because it's not only incredibly safe, right? Um, The the access to it is is very much there. Whether it's a hip, a knee, a shoulder, I mean, you name it, spinal procedures, right? As as we see an ACL tear every Saturday in a football game, yeah. or every every night on a on the TV, and we've had Aaron Rodgers with with an Achilles tear, yeah, and he's already during up the and season. Walking he's around. walking, and they're saying he may come back. Yeah, and you know this season, these are the things that we try to focus on, right? Yeah. And it's what we do, and I think it's what stimulates you. Uh, to to say, how can we get even better? I mean, now my grandma would arrive at 5 a.m. Um, the procedure is going to be very efficiently shortly after that. And I'd just say at your clinic, right? Yeah, I did yeah. six joints today, three hips, yeah. three knees. They all are home and yeah. have had dinner and probably are in bed at this point. Right. So. And so, you know, it's a little after seven, (laughs) you you look back and it just in my career, which which has been longer than yours. Right. But you know what we were shooting for back in in those days to what we are accomplishing today. And I'll say that as an industry, right. Because we all challenge one another. Okay. Everybody, it doesn't matter if it's the banking industry, if it's the auto industry, there's competition and and you're going to compete. And we, we are all in business to make a living. Okay, that's not something to apologize for. And a lot of people work their tails off, mm-hmm. right? You and your business, us and our business. Um, but if you keep your eye on that, what, what's that percentage you're shooting for? How, how are we going to dream? How, how are we going to go there? Yeah. Right? That's what keeps you coming back for more. Now, it, at my age, obviously, I, I slip. Uh, mentally more than I, I hit it probably. Right. But <laughs> you figure after, after all the years you, yeah. you gain and I guess you pray for wisdom and uh, you know, that's the best that we can do these days, but I am absolutely fascinated by what we've been able to accomplish together. And again, the orthopedic surgeon community yeah. and the orthopedic. Industry. No, it's been a, it's been an extremely fun ride. And like I said, it just seems like it was yesterday, not 12 years ago. So yeah. Thank you, my friend. It's good stuff. So you thirsty? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. as we all know, we do the beverage break. And um, I always ask my guests what they want. Well, Matt didn't get that luxury. I came down and said, hey, Matt, you want an IPA? He goes, how about what you got that's not an IPA? And I was like, so he's not an IPA guy. So um, we're going to do a Sam Adams winter lager. I mean, we're coming into the winter season. Right. I think it's going to be a nice, crisp, refreshing beer. And um, what we'll do is we'll start to the interview process. And as we've talked about before, um, the process is six questions. You'll ask me three business, then three personal, and then we'll spin the tables and I'll do the same thing to you. Um, I tell all my guests, you do have the ability to veto a question, but this is episode 19 of Ace Hawbones and you would be the first person to ever veto a question. So, um, 
Well, goodness gracious. Thanks for uh, no pressure. pressure on. Yeah. So fire away. Fire away. All right. You know, I, one thing that, that I, I will emphasize is that this is un, very unscripted. That's the whole thing about yeah. this particular podcast is there's there's no script. There's no notes. I'm not reading off cue cards. Um when I started this, my whole goal was to make this very genuine, very authentic. Mm-hmm. Um, Matt was texting me last night. He goes, one of my questions. And I said, I don't want to hear. And I, he was totally messing with me. I hope. Cause if he asked me that question, I have no idea what he was even talking about. <laughs> Marxism was, 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 uh, one of the, the words I said, you're going to have to give me a, a vocabulary lesson before we start talking about that. But yeah. So unscripted cheers. Cheers, bud. Thank you. Fire away. Fire away. Well, I mean, this could go many different directions. We'll, we'll start with the business, right? Yeah. So, and I guess it's, I don't want to get too political, but I think you'll have some perspective on this. You know, we're, we're getting ready to enter that. that I, some people, maybe they're, they, they like this. I tend to shy away uh, just a bit to all the coverage, but we're, we're heading into an election cycle, right? And so obviously healthcare is, this is going to be front and center. Um, now it, it, the, the conversation started, maybe some of the issues that we don't think about every day yeah. they continue to come up. So as a small <coughs> business owner, but even more than that, I think as a, as a, a surgeon that has, you know, great empathy for, for your patients, are there, are there any subjects you really, you're really looking for? to be addressed that would maybe ensure healthcare would be there for your patients in 10 years, right? Yeah. Um, quite honestly, this is a, a, and I'm, I'm an eternal optimist, but that being said, um, healthcare is in a very scary place in my opinion. Um, a lot of people out there, they, uh, they realize that there's issues with healthcare, they realize that there's 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 problems and rooms room and um, opportunity to improve, but from my perspective, um, we are at the critical tipping point of um, where I think certain and I'm not going to get too political with this, but um, certain sectors are trying to push more towards socialized medicine, and um, I really think that's where we're heading. And people may say, "Well, that's great." And, but I mean, just, just go a little north of here, ask our Canadian colleagues what they think of that. Uh, because quite honestly, waiting 18 to 24 months for a hip or knee replacement. And I'm just talking about elective stuff, right? That doesn't sound too great. When I tell my patients, I have a five or six month waiting period for a hip or knee replacement. They think that's horrible. And uh, how could that be? And it's like, well, I'm doing as much as I can, Mm -hmm. but when you're waiting 18 to 24 months, so Mm -hmm. I, I do think that, um, and this boils down, I'm just going to be blunt and honest. It, it comes down to the insurance companies mm. and, um, but it also comes down to the government and it comes down to, um, you know, Medicare and, um, some of the precedents that they have set. Um, cause if you ask any patient out there with any insurance plan that they have, I can assure you that over the past 10 years, their premiums have gone up. And their deductibles have gone up and their coverage has gotten worse. Mm-hmm. 
And if you ask any provider out there, physician, PA, nurse practitioner, your our reimbursements have gone down and we are working harder and harder to be able to accomplish the same tasks with much more work attached to it. Mm-hmm. Whether it's getting authorizations for necessary operations or procedures, whether it's 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 a, it's a huge strain, it's a huge burden. And if you ask the insurance, well, you don't need to ask the insurance companies, but if you just look, um, their profits have gone up, record record profits every mm-hmm. single year, up up. Whether it's United, Cigna, uh, locally we've got UPMC, we've got Highmark. Um, uh, it, it's it's a very big problem, and the tail is wagging the dog. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what we're going to start to see, and what I hope that we start to see more of, is more direct payment models that allow patients to have more freedom um, to take kind of the power out of the insurance company. Cause what skin do they have in the game? They're not the ones that uh, at the end of the day are in the trenches doing the work, taking the risks. Um, they're the ones collecting the profits by increasing, like I said, deductibles and premiums mm-hmm. and paying the providers that are doing all the work less and less. And what that's doing is it's increasing the strain and burden on the healthcare providers I mean, I've touched on this many, many times, whether it's on social media platforms or in this podcast, the, uh, and we were talking a little bit about this earlier is the amount of burnout in the healthcare industry, whether it's on your side or whether it's on the physician side, but the number one suicide rate now amongst professionals is physicians and amongst physicians, 28% of them are orthopedic surgeons that are committing suicide. That's not a small problem. Right. That is a very, very scary, real problem. And it's hard for me to kind of wrap my mind around that because I love what I do. It's hard and life's hard. Right. But um, we we need something. We need something to change. And I don't know if there's one party that's going to fix this. Um, maybe the bubble needs to burst, uh, which which is scary and maybe hard for a lot of people to hear. But um I, I think there's going to be some big radical changes, um, maybe not necessarily promoted by any political entity, but I think the consumers, right? It, consumers and, and small businesses are going to start looking for opportunities to say, you know what? I'm done with this. I'm done with these insurance companies that are going to increase our, our rates 25% every year when we haven't gotten 25% sicker, we haven't gotten 25% older but you're going to increase this. It's it's becoming a significant burden financially to even provide those benefits to employees anymore. And then the the, the quality of care and what it covers is getting worse and worse every day. Mm-hmm. So, and it's funny that you mentioned that because I, I I shared with you that we are launching our our next podcast literally tomorrow morning at six a.m. Um, it will launch before this launches. This will this will come out next week. Uh, Wednesday at 6 a.m., but uh, Red Carpet Healthcare Solutions. And these are the exact things that we're talking about on that. Mm-hmm. No, I appreciate it. You, you mentioned the, kind of the model in Canada. Mm-hmm. And and do, do you see, uh, just with your location on the other side of the lake, do, do you see medical tourism uh, kind of that opportunity within your practice? We do. I, I will tell you when I was in uh, Michigan and Metro Detroit, I would see people coming over from Windsor because that was yeah. really close. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, right. that's like a 15-minute drive. Sure. Uh, but it, it is becoming much more common, and and these patients are are looking for it. And quite honestly, they're willing to pay cash to come and get it done, you know, two years before they could get it done 
in their own country. And um, I don't blame them. Mm, I mean, because the quality of care is excellent. Um, and the uh, ability to get it done significantly quicker so that they can live their lives. Because life is short. Mm-hmm. If you had a debilitating hip or knee condition and, and you knew that it was going to take you two years to be able to get that fixed, that some people may not even be willing to live any longer mm-hmm. for, for that. No, oh, I mean, I think that's... I think that's very real. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely real. Another point, you know, you talked about the suicide suicide rate with doctors. I mean, I, I read someplace recently where it's alarmingly high for nurses as well. Yeah, you know, it's just the it's the overall stress burden. Uh, but you you all are kind of in a similar fight, different but very similar. Yeah, right. But the stress level uh, to go with with uh, the obvious challenges for all of you. Yeah. And COVID did not make it any easier. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, no doubt. I mean, people were pressed to the limit with uh, nursing shortages, uh, physician shortages, um, other ancillary staff shortages and, mm-hmm. and care was compromised. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, and hopefully lessons learned, right. And, and certainly well beyond healthcare, but I mean, I think the world got to wake up call and, We'll see how we deal with it. I mean, it, it, it's ongoing. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Fing, right? Fingers crossed. No doubt about it. So, yeah. what else? <clears throat> we we were talking a little bit earlier about uh, maybe some of the some of the advancements, right? I was mm-hmm. introducing myself, and then we we end up on the history of Warsaw. Indiana, sure. And, and ultimately, I swear I live in Nashville, like like we said earlier. Yeah. Um, but. From a business perspective, as we do continue to chase those those incremental percentages, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you have unbelievable perspective on the history, the development, maybe what the future is, and hip replacement and knee replacement, right? Let your crystal ball go ten years. What do you think some of the key issues are going to be ten years from now? And again, the the joint, uh, the practice of joint replacement for you and what patients may expect at that time. Yeah. So for me, I think there's a lot of different avenues you could take here, whether it's going to be the technology, technological advancements, whether it's robotics, augmented reality, virtual reality, navigation, um, whether it's, and, and those are real and there's, there's definitely advantages to that. Although I'm relatively young, I just turned 45. I'm kind of in that mid portion of my career but I would consider myself a more old-fashioned, more uh, conventional surgical technique kind of guy. I, I like very good classic surgical technique, and I would I would take that any day over a robot mm-hmm. or any type of technological advancements. I'm not saying that they don't have value. That's not what I'm saying. But the other things, and this is where I focus my energy and where I see things going, is is the true experience for the patient, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Joint replacement surgery, when you were originally talking about it back in the 1980s and grandma having her hip done and, you know, a lot of these people would either get blood clots or they get infections or they get pneumonia because they were so uh, debilitated and and confined to a bed for so long. Mm -hmm. Um, Where now we're doing same day surgery, patients are going home in my practice 95% of the time the same day. Um, I think a lot of it becomes the experience. So for me... Um, I, I think educating patients prior to surgery, I think doing anything and everything we can to um, help modify and hopefully minimize the post-operative pain 
And that um, oftentimes includes and requires doing things much before we cut their skin. It's uh, preemptive analgesia. Um, whether it's for knees, we're doing Iovera treatments, cryoneurolysis, whether it's the blocks that anesthesia is doing, whether it's the blocks that we're doing, I'm constantly trying to change and modify my surgical technique. Um, just within the past seven to eight weeks, I started doing all subvastus, um, knee replacements, partials and totals, which prior to that I was doing a medial parapetellar. So just what that means for you guys is, um, a standard total knee approach, requires cutting a very big tendon or the most powerful muscle um, that helps to control the kneecap, the patella. It's called the vastus medialis oblique. And we would detach that from the kneecap and we would cut up into the quad tendon or cut into that muscle itself. And there is a way, just like we do direct anterior hip replacements, where we can do this truly minimally invasive without cutting the muscles, without cutting the tendons, without detaching the muscles or to the tendons, called a subvastus uh, surgical approach. It's a learning curve. Um, it, it has slowed me down slightly, not significantly, maybe five minutes longer per case, but I do believe that that's going to uh, reduce pain. I think it's going to improve function. It's going to improve uh, ability for patients to get up and down stairs easier. Um, I think it's going to improve what we call the patellofemoral kinematics, the way that the kneecap uh, sits in the patellar groove when, when you flex or extend the knee. Um, it's going to certainly improve the the vascular or the circulation of the patella. So there's all these advancements in surgical technique, um, in the technological advancements that we do um, with our post-operative uh, pain control or preoperative analgesia. Um, but to me, it's about the experience it, for these patients. And um, my goal has always been and always will be to make this as, as weird as this may sound, as enjoyable as possible. Mm-hmm. And most people wouldn't think of a, an invasive surgical procedure as enjoyable, but um, I want to make it as least uh, anxiety provoking as possible. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, and I think probably now more than ever, I, I would say people are kind of prepared uh, for the experience better, right? There's a, for sure. There's a lot larger uh, volume of people that you, you can get the, the good and the bad uh, stories, right? I mean, I think one of the one of the great misnomers, and of course, you know, I'm not an orthopedic surgeon, but working in the orthopedic industry, uh, every person I come in contact with that's not in the industry thinks I'm like, I must be as good as a doctor. I mean, what's your opinion? What should I, what should I this? What should I that? Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as products, as far as doctors, and you know, like you know, we we have all the answers. Uh, at the end of the day, where we we need somebody that approaches this, I think very traditional, like you, and has a has a wonderful pool uh, to draw from. But one of the first things that you and I worked on uh, together was you were very committed to as a young surgeon introducing yourself to the community. Right, you were in Novi, Michigan at that point. And you really had a heart and a desire to start reaching out to the community, right? And started, I think, that in your way, and it was certainly a learning process, but you would put on seminars at various restaurants, I think, up there. Mm-hmm. And it started off, I'm sure, very small. And then it grew and it grew and it grew, right? And I know you've continued that mm-hmm. in your practice for many, many years. 
to this day. And until I retire, I will continue to do that. Uh, my question is going to be this, though, and I guess I'm calling this a business, but it's a, it's a life question as well. I think you've bought into preparing the patient as best you can, which to me is probably more than 50% of the challenge, right? Getting that patient prepared for that procedure and yeah. all the steps that you go through to get there. And there are tons of, of, of education. But education and mental state, that doesn't supersede diet uh, preferences and things like that, yeah. right? So over the years, what, what have you done to try to find that balance? And, and maybe what, what do you suggest? when it, it doesn't mean that somebody's obese either. I mean, they can be incredibly unhealthy. You know it, and you don't want to schedule or do their joint replacement until such a time that, that you have confidence that, that other physical ailments might be under control. What have you done over the years to adjust any kind of dietary recommendations? Yeah. So, I mean, this has been a push, I think, in the past probably five to seven years, mm-hmm. uh, not just from my practice, but other colleagues of mine, where we've looked at these patients and, you know, again, there's there's external pressures and stressors, right? Like patients don't like complications. When there is a complication, say an infection or this or that, um, it always tends to be the surgeon's fault. Right. Mm -hmm. And what they fail to realize is that this is a relationship, just like anything. It's not generally one person's fault. And quite honestly, and I'm not just saying this because I'm a surgeon, but quite honestly, a lot of the times it's it's outside of our hands Uh, and I call it protoplasm. So it's kind of how that patient takes care of themselves, whether they're drinking Mountain Dew and eating Cheetos for breakfast or eating Twinkies or smoking or their diabetes is out of control. Um, so one of the big pressures from insurance companies is like, well, if you return to surgery within 90 days, you're not getting paid anymore to fix this problem, whether it's your problem or not. It is my problem. I have to fix it, but it may not be my fault. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and I don't do anything defensively. I don't do things because I don't want to have financial penalties or this or that. I do things because I want to optimize these patients and really see them, succeed. And, and, and I do want to minimize those potential downsides because trust me, the worst thing in the world is when a patient comes in with any type of complication, uh, whether it's a mechanical complication, a biological complication, an infection. Um, and I have to, to coach them, counsel them. So we created a wellness Institute and, um, we address all those things actually before surgery. They don't actually ever meet me until they've met certain strict criteria, whether it's BMI body mass index, um, which is a ratio between your, your height and your weight, um, nutritional status. We look at, um, blood markers such as albumin pre albumin to make sure that you're in a, a safe range to proceed with surgery. Uh, we look at smoke, excuse me. We look at smokers and, um, if you're a smoker, I'm sorry, I don't do your surgery until you've quit smoking. And we, we don't just say stop smoking and come back once you've spot, stopped or lose weight and come back when you've lost weight or get your diet under control and come back when that's happened. We actually are now helping them do that. Mm-hmm. Same thing with diabetes. Um, we're, we're giving them the tools. We're coaching them. We have an institute that does that, the Wellness Institute. And I hired an entire staff to do that. Bridget Scullin, she's our nurse practitioner. She heads that up. She sees 100% of our patients before mm-hmm. surgery. And if we see these higher risk patients, 
she even sees them before we even meet them. And then we've, we have a couple other um, staff that work alongside Bridget to uh, ensure that this is happening uh, so that people aren't slipping under the radar and, and getting on our surgical schedules. And then we have these potential uh, complications or disasters. So it's extremely important. It's one of my lifelong missions. And one of the main reasons that I, you know, named my practice whole health mm-hmm. um, is truly looking at more than just their, their orthopedic needs. That's awesome. So now we transition to the, the personal, personal questions. Yeah. Huh? So fire away. Let me get a sip first. Um, this part. Yeah. This is going to, this is going to get fun now, isn't it? Yeah. This is the fun so, stuff. Okay. It, I can't tell you how stoked I, I've been. I think, at different times over the last year plus that like, I think it was mega millions and Powerball, like both went over a billion dollars. Right. And so I don't care who you are. Right. You, you, you kind of like, man, I got, I got to put, I got to get a couple tickets. Right. Okay. I'm not a big gambler, but yeah. And then you, you kind of get stoked. You're like, man, is this, what, what would I do? What if some, I mean, somebody's going to win. Right. Right. So the question's this. You win a billion dollars in the lottery. Right. What do you do? How how do you react to that? And the second part of it is, is that a blessing or a curse? Wow. Um, I I was wondering where the heck you were going with this (laughs) (laughs) when you started that question out. So, um, First and foremost, I probably wouldn't change a whole lot. Yeah. Um, it's not, I'm not moving. I'm not moving my family. I'm living here. I'm, I'm going to stay in this house. Um, I'm probably going to travel more. Um, I'm absolutely going to start some foundations and uh, probably devote a lot of that towards education for people that are less fortunate and don't have those opportunities, whether it's scholarships whether it's maybe even opening a school. Um, my wife is a teacher, my whole family. My father was a teacher in Meadville for, for 31 years. My uh-huh. three older sisters are all teachers to some degree, aunts are teachers. Um, so that that's huge to me is education. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the financial security, I would definitely um, help those out around me, whether it's my family, my friends, um, it, it, I, would, I would do some mission work. Um, I would still operate because I really enjoy and love what I do, but I probably would scale back a bit because it is, it's tough. It is physically very demanding. And, um, you know, there's going to come a point in my career where I'm going to have to slow down. And uh, it would probably would allow me to do that a little sooner mm-hmm. than natural history would, would play out. But I wouldn't change a whole lot. I, I would still, again, live where I live, do what I do. But I, I would definitely travel more because that's one of the things that Karen and I love to do. And and I would I would definitely give back to local communities and and more needing communities globally. So you're on you're on one of your jets and uh travel is gonna be an option. Like what's a what's a that ultimate spot you haven't been to yet? Oh, haven't been to yet. Um, so I've been all over Europe. You and I were talking about mm-hmm. that a little bit earlier. Um, definitely want to get to 
Japan at some point, but mm-hmm. um, I really want to go to South America. Um, there's a lot of cool, cool countries down there that I've just never been to. I'm, I love nature, so I'd love to go see the rainforests. Um, but I also would love to go to say Argentina mm-hmm. and uh, Costa Rica and um, you know, just those, those kind of exotic yet tropical, but yet very nature oriented locations. Cause, yeah. cause I love hiking and just, just getting out and getting fresh air into my lungs and sweating during a good hike. And, um, and just seeing just different cultures too. I love cultures mm-hmm. and um, animals that I've never been exposed to, except for snakes. You can keep the snakes. Yeah, I'll tell you. But but that jet again with your billion dollars, you're, you're going to get wherever you want. Yeah, so, you know, especially in the Caribbean. You guys like the Caribbean too, right? Yeah, for sure. Is it is it Caribbean or is it Caribbean? Um, I I think I used to say Caribbean. Like if you're going to do a uh-huh. uh, Caribbean cruise. Maybe you would say that, but I, I would say if I'm going to go there, I would say I'm going to the Caribbean. Yeah, that's that's more proper in the islands. Right? I think so. Okay, well that's cool. But again, you you'll be able to get there on your jet. Yeah. Again, this is this is with a billion bucks. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what. Pipe I, dreams, Matt. You know, for for me, I'll just interject that you know, there's going to be a, a large lake property, right? It duly positioned to get either the best sunrise or sunset, right? You could do both. Yeah. Yeah. And then on this lake where my, I, I don't have a pure space. I just pull a yacht up and then do everything kind of off the yacht, <laughs> you know, just to kind of stand out. Right. Just because you can. Right. Yeah. But it would be a peaceful life. But I think, I, I think if anybody says that they wouldn't give uh, more than they got, it's, then I think that becomes concerning. Yeah. Right? You know, it's like, where, where does this, what are you going to do with all that drive? money? Right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. What, <laughs> What more? But the the other part is it a blessing or a curse? Um, yeah. I mean, quite honestly, I think it's probably more of a curse than a blessing. Yeah. Um, because you want to help people, but then there's going to be people coming to you asking for help that maybe you don't either believe need help or you don't think that they're going to do good things with that money, right? Okay. Whether it's getting into drugs or or or, or whatever, or gambling, or, or this or that. And, um, you just become a target Mm -hmm. and the older I get, uh, the more I really appreciate my privacy and, uh, just being home with my family and not necessarily being out and about. So, you know, I would almost not want people to know. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's why I almost said like, I wouldn't change a whole lot, Mm -hmm. at least on the surface. Yeah. I I guess it'd be a good problem to have. It's probably not going to happen. Yeah. Odds are you and I aren't winning the Powerball. Probably probably not, but I'm also at that phase of life when you say, you know, what what's not what's what's enough, right? Uh, What what are your priorities, right? And and I don't know. I think the older you get, the less you say it's money. Oh, for sure. And the more you realize that that can create more stress and problems and strife than what you thought when you were in your twenties. Yeah. Right. I mean, some of the happiest people I've ever met live the most simple lives and um, they have very, very little stress in their life. Yeah, absolutely. All right. If you're comfortable, um, describe the hardest thing 
that you've had to overcome in your professional life? In my professional life, hardest thing I've ever had to overcome. Well, we could say life. I mean, it's, uh, yeah. Wow. Um, gosh. Let me think about that a little bit. Um, you know, there's, there's, a, I've had a lot of challenges in my life, whether it was academically or, or whatnot, but the more I think about it and this is going to sound probably a little arrogant, but when I look back on it, none of it was really as hard as I thought it was at the time. Hmm. Maybe I underestimate it now, but, um, maybe the current it, it, it it's just because once you get through something maybe you just inherently think it was easier than it, what it really was right. right like when i look back on like just getting into an orthopedic residency that at that moment that seemed like the hardest thing in the world to me and then when i got in maybe i just went a little crazy in my mind and and just said wow that wasn't that hard but i, I would say starting a practice um kind of from scratch and, and building it and um, just dealing with, with people and, mm -hmm. and staff and getting through a pandemic, like doing all that kind of in that little period of time mm -hmm. has been pretty, pretty challenging. But at the same time, I've been so blessed with amazing staff members and teammates to help me accomplish mm -hmm. that. Um, you know, whether it was um, relocating from Michigan to Pennsylvania, that wasn't that, difficult um you know I, I think moving from an acute care hospital setting to a physician-owned hospital setting there was certain challenges and challenges and struggles with that but at the end of the day was by far and away the best decision i ever made mm -hmm. um although that there was there was challenges there so matt that's a that's a tough thing maybe maybe my week-long um fast was my i'm kidding but I, but no i think but i think your point is actually made pretty well you know there there are a lot of hurdles in life yeah and as the hurdles approaching you're kind of dreading that day do, do i have what it takes to get over right i i, I can't touch it I, I i can't touch this hurdle i, I have to get over and i don't think i can right and you do and you grow and then the next thing comes up and, and that's what life is, right? It's these. And you get over that hurdle, and that hurdle didn't seem so high anymore. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. But at the at the time, I, I feel like it's real. probably the most current thing. Yeah. Is is, is probably the hardest thing that you're dealing yeah. with because you're you're dealt with obstacles, and you're saying, "How do I do this?" You know, you're going to get through it because mm -hmm. I've always found a way. Right. Where mm -hmm. there's a will, there's a way. I never give up. Um, but it's usually the most current thing, I would say. No, I think it's very fair. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. All right. Want to flip the tables here? Let's go for it, my man. Okay. So professionally, yeah. all right. So uh, I've known you in the Medactor world. I know that you were with Biomet for a very long time, but mm -hmm. you mentioned when you first moved to Warsaw, you worked for a college. So yeah. who was the the individual that you, is there one person that you can say got Matt along into the orthopedic industry? Was there one person or was it a group of people that allowed that opportunity to arise? So, you know, if we kind of rewind 
to to earlier. And yeah, I'm 21 years old. I moved from Columbus, Ohio. So it, not quite the Columbus it is today, but it was still a major city. Yeah. Right. Um, and I moved to a very small town in northern Indiana where I know nobody, anybody. Okay. Um, and I'm making no money, but it was inconsequential. I had insurance. I was able to pay my, I think it was $170 a month rent. Um, I had a computer, which in those days was not that common, right? I had to teach myself. I graduated from college, no kidding, um, outside of using an electric typewriter, if I was so fortunate, okay? All of my papers were done on typewriters. I used an Apple, one of the original Apple computers. Okay, Apple 2E. Yeah, as a, Green word, screen. as a word processor. And it was the most fascinating thing ever that I didn't have to use whiteout, right? I mean, so yeah. you, know, you go back, right? And so this is the, the days before cell phones, the days before the internet, right? You had a dot matrix printer and you had to so, peel the sides of the paper off. But And, and long distance phone calls cost real money yeah per minute right yeah, no cell phones so when i say i'm this 21 year old kid and i'm relocating to warsaw indiana you you did not have the ability to touch your foundation quite the way that you do today yeah so it was cutting the cord and uh and i immersed myself in the job there and it was easy to do because i was working with spectacular people uh being, being molded uh just in life in general, in a in a in a very good community, right? And but I was able to kind of navigate and and meet several people. But um, and so there there are two people responsible for me, right? One, his name was Mark Weinstein, and and uh, he was a graduate of Grace College in Warsaw, Indiana. But he worked at the at the university that I went to, Mount Vernon. And um, he basically set me up to get the job uh, in Warsaw at the, at the college. Uh, just the, his recommendation and the fact that if a kid was going to work for that little of money, then let's hire him. Right? Yeah. I mean, so really, I, I, I was living by the, the skin of my teeth. Um, but Mark uh, has since gone on in, in various functions in colleges and universities across the country. But, you know, you think that's that simple act of kindness, just somebody looking out for a kid with no experience, yeah, likes him, right? He's a mentor in college. And I worked uh, my student job in college, it was kind of in the, the university relations area. Right. So all small schools have to have a fundraising wing. That's sure. How, it's how they survive. Um, and there was also the marketing and public relations element of that department. And that's mm -hmm. where my student job was there. And so that's where some of the skills start getting going. And so Mark got me to Warsaw. Right. It was just a job for a 21 year old kid. Sure. And I put and I thank him uh, endlessly. Uh, for that, because it's all the things that come from that that you yeah. can't possibly see. All those hurdles we were just talking about, right? 
you know, that it, it starts a chain reaction that becomes the absolute blessing of your life, right? I put myself in position and got to know some people in the orthopedic industry, but I honestly at the time thought orthopedics must mean ankle braces and knee braces, right? I had no concept of joint replacement. Sure. Right? I had no idea what these big companies were doing. But I saw an ad in a newspaper for an engineering role. And so engineers are the ones that actually would typically go into surgery with you and, and, you know, Ryan will give ideas on instruments or implants and they listen and then interpret that by designing these products and these instruments. Um, I was clearly not an engineer, but I, I was a, I was a stupid cocky kid and I thought, well, I'll apply for it. Why not? Got a nice form letter back that, uh, to Biomet, uh, by the way. And, and I uh, got a nice form letter back that said, uh, you know, thanks, we'll, we'll put your resume on file. Now, come on, does anybody ever put your resume on file? <clears throat> so about eight months later, I actually get a call, and they said, hey, we were going through your resume on file. So, wow, okay, these people really are kind of they, into this. It wasn't a form letter. And uh, we'd like to talk to you about a job in product management. And I'm like, oh, that ankle brace, knee brace company called me. Why not? It's got to pay better than what I got now. I mean, yeah. literally, that's that's your your mindset at that point, because in your in your apartment, the the gas range is getting a little bit old, and you want to be able to afford a microwave, which again, <laughs> back in those days, was spectacular. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I'm like, I'll go interview. I mean, why not? I had no idea what the product was. I had no sciences in my background, but hey, you know, bring it on. And so I go through the interview process and there was a gentleman there and I'll, I'll mention him at Biomet and he ran uh, the hip department at that point. His name was Jeff Glock and uh, Jeff is still up in the, the Warsaw, Indiana area, but Going through the interview process, I said, it was something to the effect of, what? You know, they offered me the job. I said, why would you offer me this job? I, I don't have any of the medical background that clearly you all need, okay? I, I, I'm a fair marketing guy, I guess, but why me? And he said, I, I can teach you anything. He said, I'm much more concerned with the person than I am the skill set coming in here. We will teach you orthopedics, right? Yeah. We it's want the, the right easy person. part, right? And, and Jeff was the one that gave me, for no reason in the world, my profile did not fit a career in orthopedics, right? And again, I didn't even know what they did, truly. Yeah. Okay. But he saw something in me, and I'll be forever grateful. Well, that's what we need sometimes, just getting those opportunities, and um, we all have those those you know, handful of people that allowed us to get to where we are. So yeah. thank you, Jeff Glock. And thank you, Mark. Mark, Mark Weinstein. Yeah. yeah. So what about, um, I like asking, I've asked this probably two or three times previously on the podcast. What's Matt Long's superpower professionally? Do, do you have like one quality that you feel really allows you to be who you are and the best Matt DeLong version that, that you are you know, professionally. I, I, look, I, I think if, if there's any superpower that I've had in my career, right? And, and sometimes there's those, again, those hurdles to get over, right? 
but it's been passion. I, that's it. I mean, I'm, I'm still, once I got in with no experience into the industry, um, and started to understand what we were doing, it's like, and I swear to you, uh, this is a fact to this day. I'm fascinated at the, just the small little sliver of role that I have in helping restore patients ability to get their life back. Right. And that sounds so noble and it's the right thing to say and all that, but it's still, it still tickles me to death when I hear of the, the life changing experiences that, Again, that my industry uh, has developed, that, that you, the orthopedic surgeon community, have developed. Um, I, I'm passionate about that. I think it's really, really cool. Um, I am absolutely passionate about the thousands of relationships that I've been able to build um, on so many different levels, right? It's that professional experience that you have where you say, you know, I, I might make an impact here. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, and you, you kick yourself over and over, at least I have on opportunities I've had to make an impact and maybe just kind of backed away, you know? Sure. And that's where that passion kind of works against you, right? Because you do remember those moments, but, but I, I'm passionate about the people that we have the, the honor uh, of working with. And in my life, right, it is more on that supplier type side. Sure. Right? And so, you know, but there there are people, and I, I remember years ago going out on the shop floor, you know, where, where they're making the implants, they're making the instruments. And this is some pretty important stuff. And, you know, taking a pack of cigarettes to a guy to kind of change the machine to help me out here for a while. Right. <laughs> and then you, you always have that, you have that story, right? So, it, it's the manufacturing folks. It's all the, the folks that I've had the, the honor and the privilege of working with over the years. And then the, the unique honor of, of trying to create a foundation for a really small company and yeah. kind of start that stuff up, right? I mean, I'm not the best at anything, but I think my passion comes through. And, and that's what I want to leave with somebody because I'm not the smartest. Yeah, I, I, I'm surely not the the best of what we do, but maybe passion can overcome a lot of that. Yeah, that's what I call it a superpower. What would you say um, your least favorite part of your day to day job is? the The least favorite part of my day to day job, um, I don't, you know, there's curses and blessings, right? And I think we we really need to focus more on, on you know, the the blessing side of any uncomfortable situation that we're put in. I'll speak in generalities. Yeah. Um, if yeah, I, I'm not if asking might. for people's names or anything yeah, like that. Yeah, no, no, no. But is there situations it, where you're just like, God, you, I just really don't enjoy this part? So in, in our case, right? You know, I. I know that if, if passion was my superpower and for the majority of my career, I've been responsible for products that have full blown marketing behind them. And you better be passionate, you know, to, to kind of push that along. Right. 
And so my identity was this product guy, right? You give me the mission, and, and if I believe in it, and if these things are clinically relevant and clinically impactful, you're not going to find somebody more passionate. Mm-hmm. As the years have gone on, right, I'm not that focused product guy anymore. I got a little bit of everything, you know? And so as your team grows, it, it becomes more of a challenge, right? Especially when you, you started as, in, in essence, in a one little space, a one-man show, and then it kind of it grows around you, all the, the areas in product management and product development that, that we're trying to establish here. So the, the hardest thing, and again, I, don't, I can't say that you, know, you dislike it, but it's, it's growing the community and dealing with the challenges that come along with that, right? Because I, I don't care how, you, you could be the cockiest person in the world, and frankly, I don't care what people think, but learning to become and developing the instincts of, of a manager right, is it's an ongoing challenge. And the biggest challenge are just the generational differences that you, yeah, you have to deal with because, you know, somebody that was 18 six years ago, they look at the world different than somebody who was 18 18 years ago. Yeah. Right? And so, you know, adapting to that challenge and still trying to be that that passionate leader, right, you, so it's this constant study on personality styles, right? Which is not all bad, right? Because, you know, look, we, we all have those challenges in our families. As oh, we yeah. Grow. You know, I mean, goodness, I have 10 grandchildren now, right? And so there's quite the generation gap. Mm-hmm. That, that, how, how do I learn to speak to these kids uh, in a way that they're, they're going to understand, right? Instead of the old school stern upbringing that i had you probably had. oh my god yeah right it's a different world and uh how can we adapt to it without compromising everything because that's not an option for sure right so that's going to segue into the personal stuff okay right so um you talk about your your grandkids Mm -hmm. um your wife your children um what's your favorite thing to do with your family Say you have a week vacation, mm. favorite place to go, favorite things to do during that week. Yeah, it's, you know, we we do have somewhat of a tradition, but of course the older everybody gets, it's, it becomes a little bit tougher. But, you know, that ultimate time for us is our, our happy place is a lake, right? Remember you telling me that. Yeah, <laughs> and we spend as much time as possible uh, at a lake that's it's down south of uh South of Nashville, and actually it's by Lynchburg, Tennessee. So it's an amazing uh, area for the history of whiskey uh, and Tennessee whiskey. Excuse me, I better, better state that. But uh, you know, every year around the Fourth of July, we'll always be on the lake for a week, and and the the kids will come when they can, you know. And with growing families, it becomes ever more of a challenge to have all the calendars lined. Was it but, just like your peaceful place? It's it, there's no doubt about it. It is it is heaven on earth uh, for us. And now we were lake people when we were living in Indiana. I was going to say I remember you had a place yeah. up there too. Yeah, I mean we were talking about Warsaw, and people think you know like 
who would live in Warsaw and this and that. And it is a very small town in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's call it what it is. Uh, and for some of you that don't know, Warsaw, let's say Fort Wayne is. So Jay is, can put a nice know, little map hour. right here. And yeah, yeah, about an hour to the south uh, east, and then South Bend is about an hour to the northwest, right? And it sits right about in the middle of that. But what a lot of people don't realize is there's in that county, and it's called Kosciuszko County. There's a hundred lakes, right? Uh-huh. Now some of them are maybe glorified ponds. And some of them are pretty good-sized lakes. So we were on a lake up there at Lake Wawasee. And uh, it does. It gets in your blood, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the difference between Indiana lakes, at least the ones that were around us, you know, there there was a house every seven feet, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, lakes back in the day, they started off, people would have double wides out there, little cabins, right? But it wasn't this picturesque, you know, home inventory suite from realtor.com. Sure. But... That was kind of Indiana, right? Every square foot was taken, and the lakes weren't as big. In Tennessee, and where we go, is called Tim's Ford Lake. And, uh, I mean, this thing has hundreds of miles of shoreline. It's probably 22, 23 miles from the the west to the east. And uh, so it's massive, but a lot of it's protected as well. And so you have a lot of coves where you can get privacy anchored down, just kind of be in your own world. There's plenty of room. Do you guys have the, a place the there or do you guys rent a place? Oh, yeah, we rent a place. Down okay. There. Yeah. Yeah. But, and again, it's an easy drive for us as well. Not too far from the house. So that's absolutely our happy place. And anytime we can have our kids and grandkids, it's obviously a pretty, pretty mega bonus. Oh yeah. I've always loved uh, the lake life too. Um, so if you were not doing what you're doing in the orthopedic industry, what would Matt's along do professionally? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a great question because I, I think one of the things that I'll do when I am done is probably nothing for a short period of time. But I don't know that when you do what we do for so long, I think this, this sedentary lifestyle sounds pretty good for a while, right? Um, but I don't know that that's doable long term. Um, if, if, uh, finances weren't uh, part of the equation, right? Um, I would absolutely uh, give as much of my time, and it does play into my family story a little bit, but uh, as much of my time as possible in a service and uh, in, in where my heart is in a service to underprivileged children. Um, it is... It is uh, you know, our eyes have been open to a lot of the challenges, um, but underprivileged children. And then that's something else that's, that's very heavy on my heart, the, the human trafficking uh, mm-hmm. that, that's going on, the, the industry that exists. You know, when, when you see what's happening in the world, right, you, you can't unsee it, right? Um, so my time would be dedicated in some way, shape, or form, whatever was appropriate for me, to serving those those types of causes. Mm-hmm. So, final personal question: If you had to give, I asked you kind of the professional who kind of got you to who, where you are. You, you named two people, mm-hmm. um, but Matt DeLong, the human being. Any tributes you'd like to shout out there to 
who really helped to bring you and make you the person that you are, the man that you are mm. taking the professional side out of it completely. Mm. Just the, the, the things that you just mentioned with underprivileged children and you know, how important family time is to you. Who was that, that, that helped to instill that in you? Well, I, I, I mean, I have to say uh, my mother and father, I mean, they're the the greatest influence uh, that I could ever hope for. Um, it, it might be cliche, but I, it it is what it is. I mean, I be the same I, answer for me. Yeah, I I mean, I I look back at at all the times. Now, my my brother is is a bit older than me. My sister's in the middle, and I'm I'm the baby, right? Um, and apparently, I got away with. A lot of things that they never could, right? That's what, so, that's what all older siblings yeah, I think, say. It, I'm the baby too. So yeah, it, but you know, at the end of the day, um, I didn't care, right? But I look back at the I was willing to listen. I think you know, and I think my parents would would agree with that. It didn't mean I always acted in the right way, mm-hmm. but I look back at the number of times where. You know, a small nudge from them is a small nudge, right? Sometimes, obviously, they're they're major, but but they keep you on the right track. Mm-hmm. Right? They they help establish the right foundation. Um, they they give you a compass to go by, and I consider that compass and my father's lessons and my mother's lessons on a daily basis. Um, and so there there's no greater influence than that, right? Um, and yet if I were to name one person professionally, right, I, I honestly couldn't do it, uh, because so many people have poured so much into me, whether I deserved it or not, mm-hmm. you know? And so, you know, I've received far more grace, uh, than, than I deserve from so many people, whether it's existing employees now or people that have, that have you know, it passed on, uh, in life, you know, you start to see these generations move along that have even impacted your professional career. I, I honestly couldn't call out a single person, but there are a lot of them and I can see them all, you know, right now, but a, a community is, is responsible, at least from my perspective. Yeah. Hey, as they say, it takes a village, right? Mm. Oh, so for sure. I think that's, that's pretty much, uh, I would echo those same statements. Obviously, mom and dad are, are number one for me, but um, my sisters, my, you know, just the community I grew up in too. So, um, well, let's let's change it up here. We're going to do the, yeah, the seventh inning sawbone shoe stretch. So for those out there, uh, maybe this is your first episode. Maybe it's your 18th episode or 19th episode. I think this is episode 19. It is. Um, but I asked my guests to wear, um, you know, uh, either their favorite shoes or a pair of shoes that have special meaning to them. So what are you wearing tonight, Matt? Well, I've got the on cloud. Um, I don't even remember exactly what the, it's called Swift or something like that. I'm not quite the shoe person you are. Yeah. Right. Um, My experience with shoes, um, you know, I was the, I was the guy on a business trip. This is probably five or six years ago to Florida. And I noticed that the sole had like peeled back on my shoe. 
And I pulled into a Macy's and I got the cheapest pair of black shoes that I could. And I wore those another five years. So I'm not the best shoe person. But tennis shoes have always been an issue, right? So I had... a good issue? Yeah, like my foot would literally fall asleep at different times, right? Okay. So I probably had two narrow shoes, but Reebok, Nike, right? It just... For whatever reason, they were. It was never comfortable. Now more running shoes, not necessarily basketball shoes. Sure, but I haven't had that stuff since high school. You know? Right. So that's just not not what I purchased. It was more running and endurance and comfort shoes. I got these the on cloud. There, look, I know they're flying off the shelves, right? It's a really popular brand. Yeah, for sure. These things. are like walking on a cloud, I'm telling you. So I, I had to wear these. This I mean, it's the best tennis shoes. Are these kind of your travel shoes now? Not travel shoes. Well, look, buddy, at my age, whatever goes on your foot. No, but I'm saying because you travel a lot, right? So uh-huh. like you're you're walking through airports. You're, For sure. I'm sorry. That's what I meant by travel shoes. Yeah. Is is that what you're wearing when you're not maybe not going into business, but getting from point A Absolutely. to point B? Absolutely. Oh, yeah, most definitely. Yeah. Most definitely. They're, they're like a really trendy shoe too. They're extremely trendy. I have a so, pair. I just wish I would have got them a half size bigger because my pair are just a little small yeah. for my foot. See, I, I think the, these must have a little bit of extra width, or at least they have options, which which is what I got. And I think maybe that's probably why. They're well, they just look very comfy too. They are. It's more of like a yeah elastic material. Yeah, yeah. So I I love these kicks. How many pairs of on clouds do you have? Uh, two. Yeah. I got two pair. So these are the Air Jordan 1 Lows, which is by far and away the most popular version of uh, the Air Jordans I'd have. But these are called the SE Low Craft. Um, you know, Sean McKinnon, actually, uh, my business manager, was wearing these one day in the clinic. I said, man, I like those. And I have a ton of shoes, almost 50 pairs of Jordans now. And I didn't have these. And I said, where'd you get those? And he sent me the link on it. So as always, super comfortable. I think the Jordan 1 lows are are kind of made for my foot uh, for what that is worth. Uh, they just are super duper, kind of like you said, super duper comfortable. I wear them pretty much every clinic and um, they just fit my, my foot well. Mm-hmm. So, and um, as we were sitting down here looking for shoes, he's like, yeah, I think those work because you got a little gray on, you got yeah. a little black on. So. But uh, that being said, the next section that we always do, mm-hmm. I think I want to do something a little different tonight. We um, It's called the, the Sawbones Challenge, okay. and it has historically been um, some type of competitive challenge. We've done outdoor three-point competitions. We're obviously not doing that because it's dark outside. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we've got a pretty much a sport court down here. We've got the basketball rim. We've got the papa shot. We've got foosball. But I almost want to do something a little bit different. So you were asking me earlier about who's my favorite college football team, right? I'd like to, tra- and and I've done this with a couple guests, but it's been all NBA based. Mm-hmm. How about professional football? Do you follow? I I follow as far to keep up with my fantasy team. Okay, and then and then you're bound to pick up. A few but but things. historically, so yeah, can no. you, can you give me? <clears throat> Um, what we've done in the past is we've done kind of like you give me your top five basketball players 
point guard, shooting guard, and I'm going to give you my top five, and then we have to play against each other. Like, who would win, right? Mm-hmm. And okay. But I'd like to do something similar. We're not going to do 12 players, but, like, let's say let's do a um, quarterback, let's do a running back, okay. maybe a wide receiver, a tight end, um, and then we'll, we'll give you two defensive players mm-hmm. too. So I'm going to let you go first. We'll alternate back and forth. So All right. So what am I – We'll start with the QB position. So start with the QB, and um, and so we're talking we're talking active. No, we're talking all time. It's a historical. Yeah, it could be active or all historical. Okay. And your team's going to play my team. So again, we'll do quarterback, running back, wide receiver, tight end, and then two defensive players. And I get the first pick. You get first pick. I'm going to take Tom Brady, quarterback. Yeah. Pretty good player. Uh huh. Uh, oftentimes considered the goat and I would consider him the goat as well. It's pretty good. I mean, you know how painful that is for me to, uh, yeah. to even pick him. <laughs> yeah. Cause we know where he went to college. Where he and, went to college. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, but she was mediocre at best there. Right. It doesn't matter. Right. So who am I, I going to go with? <laughs> most, most folks that play here have been mediocre. <laughs> Except, Pete, I hope you're watching this. <laughs> yeah, but but Pete, the the reality is I, the the one that was exceptional was the was the video team. Right? Ooh, I, I mean that, that's that a was little next fresh. level. Boom. That was next level. All right. So anyway, I, I do get I get Brady. You, okay, you so you got Brady. Um, you know, my initial instinct when you I knew you were going to probably take him was like, well, who am I going to take that can even compete with him and. My first one would be, and this is not my actual guess, but it would have been Peyton Manning. Doesn't have nearly the championships. So I'm going to go with somebody that I think Tom really idolized and I think can really compete back in his prime. I'm going to go with Joe Montana. Yeah, I, I think it's a logical number two. Yeah. Right? Because the, the two names that popped into my head were. Yeah, I'm going I'm going Joe. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, now... We'll go running back, so but I get the first back, running back. Okay. We'll alternate back and forth. Okay, I, I know exactly who you're going to take, so I need to. You I do? Because I, 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 I don't I, know who I'm going to take yet. Very good. Okay. Um, Gosh. Running. I'm going to release the mind meld, so you're, you're on your own. So uh, running back of all time. Man, he doesn't have any of the accolades other than just pure skill. I gotta go with Barry Sanders. I see that that is exactly now, but I was I was drawing a Detroit line there, right? So okay, I, I thought. But I'm know, a Steelers fan, but you're, man, you're, I, you're a Steelers fan, and you know, I just look, you we, just we, give we, that guy some other weapons mm-hmm. and a line, yeah. and Barry Sanders, it's it just. I I I think there's there's no doubt, and I think it's illegal to like say OJ Simpson. <laughs> so even though it may be quite logical but, uh, but i think you got to compare you know eras <laughs> here as well right uh-huh. and like what what players could succeed in the the modern era, yeah right so uh, when when we do the game are, are we weighing championships to the, the well i mean or? i think that just speaks to their greatness like tom brady yeah, yeah. Obviously, he's unbelievable, and, and mm-hmm. Joe Montana. Now, obviously, Barry Sanders doesn't have any, but he also but, I didn't think had the pieces around him to be able to win a championship. He, but he had the he skill. Didn't. He didn't. So, so that that's true. I um, I think similarly, 
And, and I, I think I know where you're going. This, I, I, I got to go with Jim Brown. Oh, okay. Uh, I thought you were going to go because, with Walter Payton. Uh, so but. Payton, Payton uh, right there too. But I, I think in this day and age, Jim Brown would be. You think an he'd still be a stud? Absolute superstar. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, so Jim Brown with training today, what, what would he have become? Yeah. I, I would liken him to a Derrick Henry type <laughs> running back, right? Where they're going to get beat up. Right, they're gonna get beat up, but when they were twenty-one to twenty-six years old, and and just you know, the raw. Derrick Henry again, no no championships, but I just see Jim Brown as being that that would have been the just dominating ultimate to see him play today. Yeah, right, because he was big, he was powerful. I've seen none of your classic quarterbacks. I don't think. I mean, I think the end of the line would be Montana, right? Yeah, you, you say they they could succeed in today's game. Um. You know, would Johnny Unitas be Johnny Unitas, you know, today? I mean, his career might be three years. And, yeah. You know, they're on to the next flavor, you know. But, yeah, Montana on, yeah, I, would, I would go with that. But Jim Brown, I, I'm convinced. It's a good choice. I'm convinced he would be an absolute monster today. Okay, receiver. Yeah, receiver. I've got two. So once you, if you take my first one, I've got my second one already well, lined up. Again, I, I got to look, you know, I'm, I'm looking at eras too. Yeah. You know? um, boy, there's some, there are some wonderful. So you're choices. taking I, that I, player I, in I, their prime yeah, and putting them on a field uh-huh. agnostic of time. Yeah. So if you could take Tom Brady from whenever you think his prime was say four or five years ago right. and put him on a field with Jim Brown uh-huh. and I take Montana in his prime with Barry Sanders mm-hmm. in his prime, it could be today we put him yeah, on the field, right. but we're trans- teleporting them from their prime. I, I, look, there have been a lot of amazing wide receivers, right? I mean, I, I think one of the greatest ever was Steve Largent. Now, oh wow! I, I don't Is that know where you're going. I, no, I I wouldn't <laughs> do that, but I just think I mean, what a what a yeah. fabulous football player back in the day, but. I've always thought Randy Moss was the absolute ultimate, right? So that was my number two. Yeah. I got Jerry Rice as number one. And I'm going to have a little bit of chemistry because I got Jerry and uh, and Joe. And they did did something right. All right. So I got tight end. Mm -hmm. So, um, man, I've got a couple. I'm going to go with Gronk just because... To me, there's a lot of other really, really good tight ends over the years, but I feel like Gronk could do a lot, right? He caught a lot of touchdowns, but he could block, mm-hmm. right? And he was intimidating, and he just he brought that swagger too. Mm-hmm. And um, like when we did our NBA teams, I was like, you got to have Larry because Larry's bring, bringing swagger and trash talk, and I just feel like Gronk brings a little bit of that, and he's going to make – it's going to be fun with Gronk. Yeah, I, I'm between two. You know, I, I really do think Travis Kelsey is as good as there's ever been, right? I mean, the guys, you know, he and Mahomes are already surefire right? Hall of Famers mm-hmm. already, right? And um, yeah, I don't know what the relationship's going to do, right, with Kelsey's life. Right? Oh, you like, mean like, t- how good is he going to be next week? Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, I, I think that's oh a short-lived gosh. thing, but yeah. – Maybe it's even media generated. I don't know. Yeah. Are they still together? Jay, can you fact check that? You know, but 
Is that your guy? No, it's not because then this is this is a heart pick, right? Um, The the years that Peyton Manning was with Dallas Clark was Dallas Clark Uh, was unbelievable. Yeah, Yeah, he got championships, but he did it all right. Yeah, and anymore, how can you like any kind of tight end thing? And me being a Big Ten guy, right? Just look at Iowa tight ends, right? And Dallas Clark was kind of the start of that trend. But he was just spectacular and, was. and productive, right? Uh, Kelsey, I just can't do the Kansas City thing. But boy, I thought you were going to go too. with uh, Tony Gonzalez. But. Uh, again, he, he, fabulous as well, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but better than than uh, Clark? I, I don't know. And Clark yeah. was pretty high level for a lot of years. He was. So I dig him. Yeah, I think he's he's my guy. All right, so I'm going to give you uh, first defensive pick. Let's do a linebacker and then more of like a secondary player. Mm-hmm. Or you can do a linebacker or um, defensive line. Yeah, I mean, for me, and again, growing up in, in the era, and of course you're a Steelers fan, right? I mean, the, the only linebacker that you could pick just out of, appreciation for your youth is Jack Lambert, right? He was the epitome, right? Mm -hmm. From the teeth to the, to the, just the dynasty that they had on defense and it, it worked around him. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, mean Joe green doesn't have the same career without Jack Lambert. Yes. Jack Lambert was the ultimate linebacker to me. Right. Hard nosed. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, look, as an Ohio State fan, there's a lot of good options at the NFL level too, but Jack Lambert. You're going Jack. That's that's a good one. Um, Man, it's hard for me to not go Steelers here, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to do it, right? So I'm, I'm going to go um, – I'm going to go with T.J. Watt, right, as I'm coming, I'm bringing him off the end. And um, I know it's a current guy, but I think he will go down in history as one of the best. Um, I love his energy. Mm-hmm. Um, when he first started playing, I was like, well, he'll never be as good as his brother, JJ. But um, he's already eclipsed that, um, in my opinion, and he has no signs of stopping either. He just he brings it every week. I love his his tenacity, his intensity, his his work ethic. Mm-hmm. So I'm going. I'm going TJ. Oh, and he gets a good one. So yeah, you almost you almost have to do a defensive end, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm gonna have to go with with Neon Dion, baby. I just I loved his uh, his coverage. I loved his swagger, and mm-hmm. um, I mean the fact that he played two sports too. I mean he's he's pretty much a legend with that. But um, I'm gonna go with Dion in terms of my my kind of secondary do, player. Do, do you like him as a coach? I don't dislike him as a coach. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not big into the like. I'm wearing sunglasses and this and that, but you know one thing, Dion does it his way, and he mm-hmm. he doesn't care what others think. So I, mm-hmm. I appreciate that. Okay. All right. For me, my my next. Uh, my gosh, I mean, it, defensively, I mean, there's my goodness gracious. I wanted to go with Troy Palomalo. Yeah. But yeah. Just oh, another yeah, another Steelers pick. legend, but. I, I gotta, I gotta at least get an Ohio State guy, and since I picked a Michigan guy, 
And uh, right now, I think there's no doubt Nick Bosa, right? Or, or his brother, right? I mean, they're both just studs. Yeah. And, um, but he's so a rain, reigning defensive player. Nick is with San Francisco, San Francisco. and Joey's with. And the Joey's with Chargers? LA Chargers. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And uh, did they both go to Ohio State? Yeah. Wow. Oh, uh, yeah. Where are they from? Florida. Okay. Like down, down in South Florida, someplace. Yeah. Got it. Yep. So they're. Did they overlap at all at Ohio State? I think one year. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I think they overlapped on their monster contracts too. <laughs> In the NFL. <laughs> well, let's have one more. Let's do a coach, all-time, uh, all-time NFL coach. Yeah, I mean, Vince Lombardi. Yeah, you know how to get the job done. Yeah. Boy, if uh, Bill Belichick wasn't out, you know, without a shirt on and wherever the heck he was recently <laughs> on that ring doorbell I video. I saw that. That was, yeah, that was a rough one. Not sure if he was picking up DoorDash or what that was, but um, maybe, Jay, you can put that video in there a little bit. Um, <laughs> yeah, he, he. I mean, how can you argue with six Super Bowls? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, gosh, I, I guess I, I'm not a fan of his personality. He's so dry. It's kind of interesting to watch. It's hard to argue with his record, so I'm I'm gonna go with. There, there was a documentary someplace. Uh, it, it might have been Netflix. I'm not sure what it was on, but it was a kind of the story of the relationship between he and Saban. Okay. You gotta watch that. Yeah, it, it's really good. I mean, they, they. I would say Belichick is more of a mentor to Saban. Yeah. Right? And just kind of where Saban got his start in the NFL after kicking around in college, but yeah, you know, they were together. I think in New York. Maybe Cleveland. I was going to say Cleveland, well, actually it was I Cleveland. think, right? Yeah, because Saban was at Toledo, I think, is okay. he started. And he went to the Browns and worked for him. And, but just how that, how these two unique individuals, right, I think, you know, personally and socially, uh, kind of came together. And, and to this day, I think they're pretty tight. I just thought that um, Belichick was able to get so much out of his players. Um, that maybe didn't have the most talent. And and you look at some of the Super Bowl championship teams, and, and I'm talking some of the, the, the wide receivers that we wouldn't put in our top 50, right? Mm-hmm. But they were classic wide receivers for the Patriots, whether it's yeah. the Wes Walkers, the Danny Amendola's, the mm-hmm. Julian Edelman's, just those hard-nosed. Um, they're all white that I mentioned, but, um, you know, race aside, like I just feel like he f- – he was able to get people to really maximize their potential. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. I mean, that's like, a, it, it doesn't matter what, what you do for a living, the, the lessons to be learned there. Right. Yeah. It, 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 and he was a master at it. Now, you know, what happens when you get later in your career? I think a lot of that formula depended on the players that, that were there in the core that they had together for such a long time. Right. But that's sure. where, that's where all that comes together. You get a few people retiring, move on. You don't quite replace them with legends, and and maybe that formula doesn't work as well on some of the. Works the, for about twenty the, years the, for them yeah, though. Yeah, so. yeah, well, but boy, yeah, they're bad now. They are. I think yeah. they said they haven't won a playoff game in four years, yeah, something like that. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's brutal. So Matt, um, 
kind of in conclusion, I always ask my guests, um, where do you see yourself in, you know, five years, 10 years from now? Well, I think one of the things that we didn't get into, I mean, I mentioned I have 10 grandchildren and, um, you know, it's fascinating, uh, you know, the life experiences I've had and I'm fairly young for a, a grandparent, but that's what happens when uh, you go to a second marriage and you start with a family that, that you didn't, you didn't, you know, really know about. Right. And it goes from one day to the next and your role in life and your calling in life changes. Uh, but you know, it started off with, with five of us, uh, trying to navigate this, this second lease on life that we were given, uh, growing into a family. And I've been so unbelievably blessed with, with our three boys. We have, Ten grandchildren. Now, five are biologic, and five have been adopted. And so, you know, anything that I'm doing in the years ahead is going to be with my my family uh, first and foremost. Um, one of my sons has seven children, right, uh, aged four to eighteen. Um, some of them have had rougher lives than any of us would ever want to acknowledge. Right. right. And so we have unique circumstances all around, but when you decide to take on seven children, two parents don't have the kind of bandwidth to speak into the children, uh, individually. Right. It's just tough. It's a, it's a hard sure. job. So whatever I'm doing, uh, I'll be attached to some kids in some way, shape or form, just helping. Uh, maybe leading, who knows? But um, it's 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 getting that time back, maybe time that that we lose right. uh, over the years. Um, I imagine I'll still be working in some way, shape, or form uh, in ten years. I mean, I truly do. Uh, but it'll be on my terms, yeah. right? And uh, to have that kind of freedom, you know, to go into that that phase of life, right? But you know, we talked about what I what I would do, and what's one of your questions earlier. Um, there's going to be a lot of service uh, to others. I've, I've done enough for me in life, right? And uh, I can't think of a more noble calling, right? So whatever it is, it'll be uh, giving freely and, uh, and hopefully inspiring, you know, my family uh, into the next phases of their life. Love it, my friend. So first and foremost, thank you. For, for joining you. me and thanks for making the trip up here it's always fun to get together with you and mm-hmm. uh reminisce but uh, also kind of talk about where we're at now and where where we're gonna head so thanks uh, buddy always a pleasure okay so everybody again thank you so much for tuning in uh subscribe send your comments send your suggestions uh i had a a, a person i don't want to spoil it because this is going to be an amazing guest. He just agreed to uh, be a part of this podcast, but he's another local legend. Um, I will give you a little hint. He's another historic coach in the tri-state area. Not going to give you the sport or the name, but he will be coming up here in a couple weeks. Uh, it's going to be exciting. But, um, you know, again, give us who you would love to see on the show. And uh, feedback is always, um, you know, welcomed and and uh, we encourage it. So thanks for tuning in. Make sure to stick around because we're going to do a little uh, 
you know, sneak peek into who our guest is next week. So have a great night. Talk to you soon. Tell me all about it, Doc.